Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you something, people. You know, back when I was in first grade, I met this guy named Mark Esposito. And he moved in, and I lived, grew up right outside Philadelphia, and he moved in from the Pittsburgh area. And my teacher, I was like the teacher's pet, so she sat there and got me to be friends with Mark. And we had a trouble getting along at first because I was a Philadelphia Phillies fan, and he was a Pittsburgh Pirates fan, and the Phillies stunk back then. But through the years, we became really good friends, and I still know him to this day. And the one thing we always did is we always gave each other albums, and we would drive our bikes to the record store around the circle, like two miles away. Today, you would see every kid's doing it. And through the years, Mark, his favorite group was a group called Blue Oyster Cult. And I remember going to see them at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. And when the song Godzilla would come on, there would be an amazing drum solo, just a powerful drum solo. And it just so happens my guest today did that drum solo, and he's a, he's a teacher who's been you know awarded by Obama. He's just an amazing uh, musician and artist. He'll be in my town uh, just a few weeks from now. My guest is Albert Bouchard. How you doing, Albert? I'm doing great, thank you. Yeah, it's we- coming from school. Okay. Now, now I got to ask you, I read something. I want to talk about music career, but how did you get into teaching and how did this award with, I read something about Obama recognized you or something. How did you get into teaching? Well, um, I, I, um, I don't know if you know uh, that much about Brewers, but I wrote a couple songs with a guy named David Roeder. And uh, David was a, a Stony Brook student who was going to be the original singer in, in the soft red underbelly, which became Blue Oyster Cult. And uh, David was working in this school. And uh, when I uh, left Blue Oyster Cult in 1981, I did a, a lot of odd jobs. I, uh, I was a musical director for uh, the Mamas and the Papas and Spencer Davis and a few other groups. And... Uh, all these groups, we did the all these revivals, and then uh, then I got a job as a cab driver, and it was during that time that I I, I actually at the urging of uh, handsome Dick Manitoba from the Dictators and Andy Chernoff, who were both driving cab at the time, so I was like, oh, they can do it, I can do it. <laughs> yeah. Turned out to be a really hard job, and one that I was not probably suited for that well but uh david roeder said why don't you come and get a job in my school it's a it's a decent job you know it's that you don't have to break your back doing it and you get vacations and and we'll be able to write songs again because while i was driving a cab i could i stopped doing music because it was just it was a 12-hour shift so I, I, when i had time off i was exhausted it was amazing I don't know how people do it. But anyway, so he got me this job at the school, and that was 31 years ago. It's amazing. Now, now you you, yeah. you, you grew up as your family was very musical, right? I mean, how, when did you start playing an instrument? Because, you know, you, I know your brother ended up being in Blue Oyster Cult, so there must have been a lot of musical talent in the family. But how, how did your whole love for music start? Well, uh... I, I clearly, well, actually, I don't clearly, well, I, it's one of my first memories, okay, and it's not that clear, honestly, but, but I remember seeing a parade when I was three, and I just fell in love with the drummers. I thought that they were just the, the coolest thing. It looked like magic, what they were doing with the drums, because I couldn't really see their hands. I just saw them walking and making all these sounds that sounded really cool. So I begged my parents to get me a drum. It was right around my birthday. It was Memorial Day. And I think back then, Memorial Day was a little bit earlier in the year. I'm not sure about that. But but it was, I got them to give me a, a little drum for my birthday. And I played that drum for weeks. And then sometime in the middle of the summer, uh, it was very early in the morning. It was the sun was just coming up, but it was probably like five thirty in the morning. And my mother heard the drum, but it was very quiet. And so she went into my room, 
thinking that I was trying to play without waking anybody up. But no, I was not in my room. She looked out the window and she saw me walking down the middle of the street with no clothes on with my drum. <laughs> so, uh, so that was that was the start of taking off my clothes and playing the drums. Uh, anyway, they took it away after that. I was punished. And on, but, uh, how long did they punish then, you for? What's that? How long did they punish you for? <laughs> oh, for four years. <laughs> no, for no, actually for no eight years. Eight years. Yeah, I wasn't allowed to play the drums again until I was eleven. But I did play piano. I started when I was seven, and then um, and then I stopped when I started playing the drums because I I was playing the piano and I really wanted to play the drums. I'm like, please, I won't take my clothes off. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're playing the piano, and now you play just yeah. now, now. When did you form your first band? Okay, so the first band I was twelve. My brother Joe was ten. And uh, how that happened was my Uncle Bill, my, uh, he married uh, my father's youngest, uh, um, youngest sister, okay? And uh, Uncle Bill and my dad were, were good friends in high school, and they, they were always hanging out together. And he ended up marrying my dad's sister. And Uncle Bill had, he when he was in the Navy, he played in a, in a Navy band in Hawaii. And so he could play all these Hawaiian tunes and he could play Django Reinhardt and, and uh, Les Paul. He, could, he was quite a good guitar player. And uh, he also played the trumpet and the piano. And so he in his house, he had trumpets and pianos and guitars and even a drum set because his band would practice in his living room. So, <clears throat> so uh, eventually, uh, my cousin Teddy, Uncle Bill's son, said that you know he wanted to have a band. So Joe and I joined the band with uh, his his cousin uh, Eddie Baznat, and uh, the four of us started this band. Eventually, we got another cousin, Steve Alone, to uh, to be in the band with us on the sax, but. Uh, Originally, it was just uh, Teddy, Eddie, Joe, and me, and uh, nobody played guitar. Uh, I, I played piano, Teddy played drums, Joe played trumpet, and Eddie played trumpet. And uh, eventually, Teddy started learning guitar from his dad, and Teddy showed my brother how to play, and he showed Eddie how to play. And so I got to play drums, and we became like a guitar drum band, you know. And we, with three guitars and drums, we didn't have a bass player, but Eddie would play, Eddie played lead, and then when he wasn't playing lead, he would play bass lines on his guitar. Now, now were you guys so, popular? Uh, were, you, were you getting a lot of gigs? Uh, not, a, not at first. We, we just played out in front of Teddy's house, and... and he lived uh, in the town. I lived out, out way the heck out in the middle of nowhere on a farm. Um, and it, his house was right in between the town and where everything was happening. And uh, uh, like a strip of uh, cottages that uh, tourists would rent in the summer. And they would come up to, to the Thousand Islands and you know, go fishing and swimming and whatever. You know, it was a vacation place, a vacation spot. So there was always a lot of tourists. So we, we played out in front of Teddy's house and we put a, like a tambourine on the ground and people would just give us money. It was amazing. <laughs> we would sit there and goofing off and playing music and people would pay us. It was, uh, so uh, we played from when... You know, we were, I guess I was in seventh grade. Joe was in sixth. He wasn't even in middle school. And uh, and we played all the way through high school. By the time we were uh, seniors in high school, we had more gigs than we could handle. It was, uh, we were extremely popular in the area. We, the, you always heard, they are, they are great for little kids. Right. <laughs> so, 
So now, now, then, now, now, now I get they're great for old guys. Right. Well, you've you've gone full circle. That's perfect. You know, it's, it's, it's a perfect way to go. Now, now, then you go you go to college, and that's when the beginning of Blue Oyster Cult, which the was called Soft White Underbelly. Is that when you guys started to form when you went to college? Well, the first college band I had was called um, The Disciples. We called ourselves The Disciples, and we were basically, we played a lot of, like, R&B, R&B of the time, which was, like, Coasters and uh, the Rivingtons. You know, we played the Surfing Bird. We played Lou Christie, you know, uh, a lot of hit from the... Uh, from from the uh, 60s and you know early 60s because I went to college in 1965 okay. so we played those songs like popular songs of the day and then um, and we also did Beach Boys like especially we did uh, uh, A Young Man Is Gone and we did Your Summer Dream we did these songs that were mostly acapella and worked on our harmonies and that was that was really fun. And that was the first year when I was a freshman, actually half a year, because I didn't, we didn't start until the second semester. And then the, the second year, the third semester, we decided we had, we had all seen the blues project and we decided we were going to be a blues band. So we switched it up and we played like, uh, oh, Muddy Waters and, you know, Rolling Stones and all kinds of, and then we discovered the Blues Project and and became a Blues Project cover band in college, and that was that was the travesty. We changed our name to the travesty, and we we played blues, and then then we dropped out of college, and that's when I moved. Donald and I went to uh, Clarkson College of Technology. Don Roser, who now known as Buck Dharma. Uh, we went to Clarkson College of Technology, and uh, we had that band, which uh, when we started, the first first year, the Disciples were extremely unpopular. We'd, uh, we'd only played a few gigs, and uh, every time we would play, people would walk out. So we were, we were an abject failure. But... The second year, once we started playing the blues, we became popular really fast. And by the time we uh, dropped out of school, we were getting more gigs than we could handle. We uh, we were making, at that time, we were making $100 a piece a night, which was unheard of. It was like big money back in 1966. So we dropped out in 67, and I, I actually... We tried to make it as a, a travesty uh, that summer, and we couldn't get any jobs. And eventually, we gave up after a couple weeks of being turned down. And so we all went our separate ways. I worked as a carpenter. Don worked as a. He worked for a company that installed te- television antennas in Catholic schools. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> Something weird like yeah. that. I worked as a carpenter making a. I built a restaurant, which which my brother Joe eventually played in the next year. But uh, you know, I was on the team. You know, there was uh, I think ten of us building this restaurant in uh, Alexandria Bay, New York. But anyway, and it burned down, so it's no longer there. It's a parking lot now. But anyway. Uh, uh, I was in. I got a call to play in a band in Chicago from uh, the bass player from the Travesty, Jeff Latham, and so I went up to Chicago, and the band had a record deal. It was all cool. We played. We practiced a few times. It sounded good, and then the lead singer took off, and, we, and everything fell apart. Band broke up. So Don Don had uh, written me. Uh, or call me or something. I don't remember. We communicated somehow. And he said, I'm coming out to Chicago, you know, want to hang out for a little while before I go back to to school. He, he'd uh, he'd uh, registered for a school called uh, New York University, New York 
Institute of Technology, NYIT. And so uh, he was going to go there, and um, and so he came out to Chicago, and I said, please take me back to New York. I, you know, I heard you, you you met this guy, Sandy Perlman. I want to work with him. So, because Sandy had told Donald that he was going to make him a star. So, and I wanted to meet him. So I came back with Donald to meet Sandy. And, of course, uh, you know, uh, the software and underbelly had already kind of, well, actually, there was a group that started, but they weren't called that. When I, when I came there, the drummer couldn't make it, so I, I filled in, and Sandy liked me, and I liked him. So we, we hit it off, and so I started playing with the group, and uh, Sandy uh, came up with this name, Software Dunderbelly. And uh, eventually, within about a year of me coming to New York, he got us a deal with Elector Records and Jack Holzman. So, uh, and by then, we had uh, uh, a lead singer named Les Bronstein. And uh, Les was a really great singer. He could imitate just about anybody. He sounded like a cross between Al Jolson and Jim Morrison. Okay. You know, he kind of had that moody Morrison thing, but he could also belt you know, really belt out stuff, you know, like a Broadway guy. Anyway, uh, and that's pretty much how the software and underbelly got started. We got a, a like an electric deal, and, and and halfway through making the the record, Les quit the band, and that was kind of uh, a disaster because we we uh, the record company was really they thought that Les was you know, the thing, you know, he was the star of the band and the rest of us were just competent musicians. So we got Eric Bloom, to, who was our road manager at the time. We knew that he could sing. He, he actually, he'd, uh, that I played with briefly in uh, the Thousand Islands, uh, with a guy named Peter Haviland. And so he left, Peter Haviland went to Hobart, and Les went to Hobart, and so uh, Les had played with Peter Haviland, but more importantly, Eric Bloom had a, a, a group with Peter Haviland, that, uh, and I think it was like Peter Haviland's group, but it, it, and they had played at Hobart for the whole four years that they were there. So Peter had told me about this group that lost and found and we got a really great lead singer, you know, because Pete was a good singer. And I was like, oh, you really sing well. And he's like, oh, you should hear the guy that in my regular band, Eric Bloom, he's really great. So so I met Eric, and Eric needed a job. He wanted to be a roadie. So he, he had a, a van and a PA, so we let him be the roadie. And then when Les quit, we decided to give Eric a shot at singing the vocals. And we thought Eric was great. But... I think that people at Electra felt like he didn't have the look that they were looking for. They they were really looking for a boy toy kind of pop guy, which and Les was very good looking. So and Eric is not. Let's face it. I mean, Eric would be the first to admit it. You can quote me on that. He's he's not a great looking guy. He's different. He's a different looking guy. And and the thing that. Eric has going is he looks badass, you know, even though he's really just a regular guy, he looks like a badass guy. So, so when Eric joined, the, for, at first, Eric joined the group and he tried to, to redo Les's vocals and it wasn't working. It really, it couldn't work with Les, with Eric because uh, doing the thing that we did with Les because uh, we were very eclectic and and kind of bizarre and and uh, and we really needed a, a tougher image to fit Eric and Eric himself really recognized that and he was really pushing to make make our sound harder you know so and he was really pushing us in more of a, like a metal you know I mean at the time. You know, he his favorite group was Steppenwolf, so we were trying to imitate Steppenwolf to a, to a degree. 
And uh, so we recut the album that we had done for Electra. We we did it. We redid it with a little bit more uh, driving, more you know, hard rock kind of approach. And uh, and they dropped us from the label. So you get dropped. So now now what are your plans yeah. after that? Because you know you're sitting there. You you know you know you had this this deal, and then of course record companies are fickle. I've always heard that story. So you get dropped. Yeah. What do you guys do? Because you have a product now. Does that product that that what you recorded does that own to you? So can you guys shop that, or how did that work? Nope, nope. It belonged to the record company, and they were just going to put it on the shelf, which they did. They did for for. Uh, 30 years almost and then they uh, then they eventually they put it out in 2000 I think so we recorded it in 66 so with that 24 years 20 24 years they put it on the shelf and but uh, so we were dropped uh, the bass player in the group Andy Winters had a, uh, he was like kind of, well, there was another thing that happened, which was that right before we dropped, we had no money. We were, we were totally broke. So the bass player for my high school band, which was called the Legal Tones, said, listen, I need a drummer and uh, a lead guitar player for my band. You know, can you, can you uh, come up here and up to the Thousand Islands and and play these gigs that we've already hooked up. You know, we lost our drummer and our, our lead guitar player. So Donald and I and Eric, because Eric was like, well, I want to go too. So Eric came. So it was me, Don, Eric. Alan Lemire stayed in the city. And so did uh, Andy Winters. So uh, when we came back, Andy already had a job. And he was like, I can't, I can't practice you guys. I can't do this. And uh, they liked it, 
And uh, then uh, two weeks later, we got to do the same thing, only this time it was with Clive Davis and three of his advisors. And uh, two of whom we knew very well. One was Bobby Columbia, who I, I met when uh, he used my drums one time uh, with blood, sweat, and tears. They wanted to, to sit in. So I let Bobby play my drums and... And and I kept running into him, you know, you know, in the in the village, you know, in Greenwich Village. So you know, we were friends already. And so Bobby was uh, at that point. Clive had, uh, had asked him to be his advisor, and he had Patty Smith, who was already going out with Alan Lanier, so and a good friend. And the other one was Harry Nielsen, who we never met, and they all loved it. And uh, and so Clive signed us. So right so when you got signed, now how did the name Blue Oyster Cult come about? Oh, okay. So so he said yes. Uh, we're going to drop a contract. Come back next week. We came back the next week, and they said, okay, what's the name of the band? And we had been fighting all week about it because we were we were told that we would have to have a name. And we didn't want to call ourselves Doctor and Underbelly because we'd already been slammed in the press for a bad gig that we did in the Fillmore East with uh, Jeff Beck. And, uh, and we couldn't come up with any other name, so we told Sandy, just give us a name. And so he, had, he already had the song called Blue Oyster Cult, so he just gave us the name of his song. And we're like, you know, what happened was we we told Sandy and Murray Krugman, who was our product manager, we said, you two go in the, that room and don't come out until you've got a name for us. So they said, okay, and they went in the room. They came out like less than a minute later, laughing hysterically, going, we got it, we got it. It's going to be sucks. It's going to be blue. Oyster cults. We're like, Go back in the room. <laughs> <laughs> Go back in there. Come on. And they're like, no, no, that's going to be a deal. a deal. So we said, okay, what, what the hell? And you, so uh, that's you know, how that came about. You know what's amazing about the name? You know, it sounds so different, but, you know, now it's BOC. I mean, the name is stuck. And the one thing about it is... You always remember a band when you hear about a if you hear a band called the Pandas, you're gonna forget about the Pandas. But if you hear a band called Blue Oyster yeah. Cult, you're gonna go, "What the? What? It, wait, we gotta listen to that." What is that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so you get you get the record here now. How does your first album do? And I know I believe you sang some songs on our first album. Am I right? How did your first album do? And and did you guys start touring immediately with bigger bands when that album came out? We toured before the album came out with Big. We got the first thing we did was we got on a college tour. We got signed to a a, a booking agency, and uh, and before the record came out, we played I think uh, ten gigs with the Birds, who were on Columbia, and also the Mahavishnu Orchestra, which is a brand new group, also on Columbia. So both both Mahavishnu and our records just came out. And so we were in the middle because they felt like we were more commercial than Mahavishnu because they were just an instrumental band. They didn't have vocals. So uh, uh, on the first record, I sang, I believe, only one song, and that was um, Cities on Flame with Rock and Roll. But that turned out to be the single. So uh, I got... I mean, it's been very, you know, that was a song that was originally, it was called Siren Sing-Along, and it's quite a bit different, but uh, I, and I, I wrote it with Sandy Perlman, and, uh, and so I, Sandy said, I got a better idea for that, for the lyrics to that song, it's going to be called Cities I'm Playing with Rock and Roll, and I'm like, well, the track is not, it doesn't sound like that, that's, the track sounded like some sort of, it was really influenced by, if you if you could mash up uh, Paul Butterfield with uh, Traffic, that's what the song sounded like. 
kind of jazzy, kind of bluesy. <clears throat> but cities I'm playing did not sound like that kind of thing. So I was like, I need the the record. I needed to sound more like a cross, a mashup between King Crimson and Black Sabbath. And I, so I told Don this, you know, Buck Don, and uh, Don said, "Oh, I, I can do that. I can, I can think of something." So he basically helped me with the music, you know, a lot of the riffs, you know, the ba da 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 da. That was all Donald. I mean, I mean that that was exactly the kind of thing that I wanted, you know. And so he started doing it. Oh yes, yes, yes. Come on, you know. <laughs> you know how you get all excited, you know. So we wrote it in the afternoon, the two of us, and then uh, and we started practicing it that same day. So, so that's, that was the. You know, I did write a lot of the songs. I was I was an experienced songwriter. I started writing songs when I was about twelve or thirteen. So uh, uh, I was the main songwriter. At the only before the Columbia record. The person that ever wrote songs was Alan Alan and myself wrote all our soft on anybody songs. Now I got a question oh, yeah. for you. When 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 yeah. you're when you're live and you're drumming, I mean drumming is hard enough on itself because you know people don't think about this, but you gotta use both your hands, both your feet, your mind's always gonna gotta be going, you know, it's it's very it's a hard thing to do. How do it's you... a responsible position because if the drum stops or the beat stops Song, the party stops. Wait, how do you so sing you really to, How do you? I mean, how do you yeah. be able to pull out that extra oomph to actually sing the song when you're drumming? I mean, it, is it is it like a sixth sense? I mean, it's something that you are the backbone of the band, and now you're the front part of the band. How is that? Yeah. Ta- is that taxing on you when you first started doing it? Did you feel pressure? I I felt like it was impossible at first. When, you know, that I mean, when I was. Yeah, yeah. I I never was comfortable playing the drums the same until until recently. And I think part of the deal is that uh, I've been playing drums so long that it's uh, it's automatic to me. As a matter of fact, uh, what I started uh, making all these demos and doing a lot of like. I was singing a lot more after I left DOC. I would I would sing uh, most of the songs, and at first I could only sing sitting down. I couldn't sing standing up. It was weird. I had to sit down to sing because I was so used to playing the drums and singing. But uh, by the time like uh, by 2016, when I went out on the boat with Blue Oyster Cult, I was starting to get used. You know, singing and playing guitar, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> right now, yeah. now I got to ask you. Now, in your voice or cult days, you know, "Don't Fear the Reaper" was such a big song. What did you uh, think of the uh, Saturday Night Live sketch that they did, which is one of the most popular sketches? Did you guys enjoy that? And and you were the cowbell guy, actually, right? Yeah, yeah, I actually did play the cowbell, and uh, I mean, I remember like clearly the whole situation because. Uh, uh, it was David Lucas. It was the producer who wanted the cowbell, and I was like, "Really? Are you sure? Is this making it, guys? <laughs> you know, as I'm doing it, you know, like why? Why do you want a cowbell? You know, is the tempo not, you know, steady enough?" And he's like, "No, the tempo is fine. The tempo is perfect." He says, "I just want to hear that sound. I remember it clearly." He said, "I just want to hear that sound on the track," and.
one of us, the two other producers, Murray and Sandy, and everybody in the band was like, that is awful. Erase that immediately. You know, I mean, even though we loved Randy, it was just, we did not want that sound on that track. And so then he, then he I think he, he was mad. He wanted me to play a cowbell. So I was like, <laughs> okay. And so we we had to do, I had did three like experimental takes. Like the first take was just me playing the cowbell. And David Lucas supplied, he gave me his own cowbell, which I believe was a JCR. Um, church. I remember it was a small cowbell. It was like a little five-incher or something. It was like a cha-cha cowbell. A mambo is very Latin sounding. You know, not like a big heavy rock cowbell, but it's light. And so I played it and uh, I said, David, it just doesn't sound right. He goes, oh, it just needs some tape on it. Get some gaffer tape on it. So <laughs> put a whole bunch of gaffer tape on it. You know, and it kind of deadened us a bit. And then uh, I said, I don't know. I, he said, that's good. That's good. I'm like, let me try a timpani mallet. Let me try that. Because I had, I was, since I played timpani in the high school band, I always had timpani mallets. I just love that sound it's in the top top. So, so I played the timpani mallet on the cowbell. And he said, oh, that's even better. That's great. That's it. You know, it was three, like, just like, just like the skit, it was amazing. I mean, I mean, because Will Ferrell just pulled this out of his imagination. He heard the the cowbell on the track and he imagined how it could be that that would develop, and it was exactly right. <laughs> it was really well, that, funny, but I I thought it was hysterical. Now, when I saw it, I was like, brilliant. Doesn't that Absolutely didn't brilliant. that throw you for a loop? Like all of a sudden, people were probably calling you and going, "Hey, man, there was just a." Uh, Blue Oyster Cult sketch on Saturday Night Live because that's not something you, you're expecting. You know, it's not like you sit down to watch Saturday Night Live and yeah. go, they're going to have a Blue Oyster Cult sketch. Were people calling you yeah. or how did you find out about it? Yes. Yeah, people called me, but it wasn't until after. It's funny because I had turned on Saturday Night Live that night and uh, and they they it looked like they were cutting to a commercial. So I channel surfed to... to uh, I knew that David Roeder, who I've mentioned before, he had cut a track. I had I had just finished mixing it like the day before, and he went on public access TV to perform to lip sync the song. Or maybe maybe actually I think I made a TV track for him with without a vocal, and he was going to perform it on this this public access program. So I switched to that, and I missed it. And, you know, after, you know, after it's over, people called me, and I said, oh, crap, you know. So I, I didn't get to see it until, like, the next day or something. Well, now, with the Blue Call, I remember seeing you guys at the Spectrum in Philly, and, and like I said in the beginning, the drum solo in Godzilla was just, you know, you, you we, I saw you a few times. You, you all waited for that, because you knew it was coming. How does a drum solo, how do you decide what song that there's going to be a drum solo, and is it written in, or what's the process? Because <clears throat> that pretty much, you know, everyone expected that drum solo, and then I believe you used to have, like, a, a, green, a Godzilla pop up on stage, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we did. We had been. We I don't know for some reason the song was extremely short. It was only it was under three minutes, you know, without the drum solo. So we we felt like we wanted to extend it out. It was a great little uh, uh, tune. There was already a bass solo in it, so it seemed logical that I should do a drum solo. And the drum solo started out as like something that was along the lines of bass solo. It was like eight bars or something, you know. And eventually, uh, we played a, uh, a show in Winterland for Bill Graham, and he built us this giant Godzilla head and then that he put on a forklift, and you could put, you could put a guy inside the head, and he could make the mouth and the hands move. So, they, and and he took and he had a he he put a fire extinguisher in there so that to shoot the the smoke out the mouth and uh, oh and he had he had red gels where the eyes were so that the eyes would light up red 
you know, and uh, it was quite quite a interesting thing. So when that happened, then the drum solo became really uh, much much more uh, proactive, and uh, and uh, I started using electronic uh, a bunch of electronic drums and trying to imitate the sound of Godzilla and the sound of you know destruction as Godzilla stomped Tokyo into the ground. So. It, it turned into a whole thing, you know. It, 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 you know, I don't know at what point you saw it. You probably saw it when when you had the big guys on. Yeah, it was. I was at the Spectrum in Philly, and I remember. Yeah, it was a like an eight or nine minute song. Yeah. So no, you know, no, I had a whole whole routine, you know, planned out for it, and it would end with the, the strobe lights. And me wearing the the little Godzilla head. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I didn't think that was crazy. I, I was like, I was sitting there going, for some reason, I knew yeah. you put the head. The head ended up on you. Now, do you know when you do a yeah. solo like that? Do you know? Do you change it up each night, or do you just get into the rut and it just takes you over that you play the solo pretty much the same each show? Uh, I had a pat. I had like a a kind of a a map that I would go, but I would always meander around. And sometimes the, the, the musical riffs would change, but it kind of like, I would start out with, you know, the tom-toms, and then I would go to this snare drum, then I'd go to the electric drums, and then I'd go back to the snare and bass drum kind of thing for the, the strobe lights. So it, it you, you I, I mean, I could change, like, now, when I play Godzilla, which is, uh, you know, I don't play it every night, but some when I do, it's never the same. It's but back then you had, you know, you had the lighting guy, and you know we we all had to be coordinated, you know, for the big show like that. So I could I had to kind of fall into a, a pattern, yeah. for it, you know, just to, to make the show work. Now, as a performer, what was it like as you were? Growing, where you were you were opening for bands, and then you're headlining these tours, and you're playing these big venues. What's that like as a performer? How do you grow into that? Because you know when you're headlining, you know people want to come see you, but you you have to deliver. And I, I mean, did it take you guys a while to get used to playing in big venues and headlining them? Uh, well, by the time we were headlining, we were we were used to playing in big venues. Uh, it was a big switch because when we were not headlining, we were really feeling very competitive and trying to blow the headliner off the stage. Basically, that was our attitude. Is we are going to make it impossible for them to follow us. And we did get kicked off some tours because we were just too good. But then when we were the headliners, it was a little different. We had to be kind to our opening acts. We, you know what I mean? We had to we had to keep up the intensity, but we couldn't. You know, I think we felt the. You know, uh, uh, it was harder to feel competitive towards those people that were us. You know, only a few years before. You know what I'm saying? Right. Now you know it was. Yeah. What was some of your favorite places? What were some of your favorite cities to play across? I mean, because you oh. played so many, but what cities, like I've talked to a lot of musicians who say, when you go to Japan, it's amazing. South America's amazing. Yeah. You know, people yeah. like Philadelphia. Yeah. Some people hate Philadelphia. What were some of your favorite cities? Well, number one, Seattle. Seattle was the best place for us. We, I mean, the first time that I looked out the, uh, from the dressing room, you know, high dressing room was like way up, you know, a few stories above uh, the stage. Uh, and I looked out and there was people all the way around the block. It was like, whoa, look at this. I even have pictures of it, actually, of the, that first concert. It was sold out, but it was like the people just lined up early. They were, you know, I don't know if it was like they had to get their seats or whatever, but it was just like, you know, seeing like a thousand people on the street, you know lined up to see you. It was, I'd never seen anything like that. It was, it was amazing. And uh, so that first, first show at the Paramount in Seattle, fantastic show. Uh, it's got to go down. It's one of my favorites. Actually, 
Joe, can you talk? Can you talk a little more into the phone? I'm losing you a little. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm moving away from. I I'm saying uh, I saw the uh, the same thing two years ago or a year and a half ago when I played with Blue Oyster Cult in London. That was a great show. I played uh, at the O2 uh, in uh, in London. That was that was great with BOC and a terrific show. I really had a lot of fun. So so. The going from back in the very early days till you know very recently. I, I I mean I've always loved San Francisco. I just love San Francisco. Forget about playing there, but I, it was always a great place to play, especially when Bill Billy Graham Bill Graham was alive. Uh, he was a gracious host. It was a, he had a great great like uh, production company there. They always top notch. Uh, New York, of course, always a great place to play. It's my hometown right now, you know, for the last uh, 50 years. <laughs> now, it, it's been my hometown, so. Now, you guys were huge. Uh, when you, when I wanted to ask you, you guys, you know, you play in all these cities, you're playing these big things. Why did you leave the band? Was it just like I, I talked to a lot of musicians who are just they're just tired? You know, I think they got they've been with guys for a long time. They've hit a certain level. Did you want to go into your own creative ways because you've done so much since then? You know, I, I think you, you're putting albums out all the time. You're going on that tour with your brother to tell stories. What did you yeah. did you just yeah. feel like you had to grow as an artist or or what happens when you leave a band? Is it you know now you well well I mean there was a there was a situation where it was. I look at it now as like a power struggle. You know, I mean, first of all, we're all high as kites. This is right around, you know, I left right after uh, Burnham for You was a hit, or in the middle of it, really. I mean, and uh, they asked me to leave, and uh, I was very, I don't know, mixed up about it. And I think they were mixed up about it. There was some hard feelings and stuff. And, uh, but it was not about, it was nothing, and from my angle, nothing about music. I have no problem expressing myself or my opinions. And I also, I don't feel like I have any problem accepting criticism, making changes if people think that I'm not doing the right thing. So I, I, it wasn't that, it was more on the personal level. So it it was it was a personal thing, really. It was a personal thing. I had a, a issue with and 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 possibly from an angle that the other guys felt like I was too bossy. Okay. I think that, that if I'm if I can take total responsibility for what happened, okay. I was bossing them around. I was telling them what to do. I was high as a kite. I I I basically created the last hit they had, and I was throwing it in their face, and they didn't want to hear it. So, so how did you end up playing with them me. again a few years ago? How did that happen? Oh well, over the years, I mean, we you know we've all you know admitted that we were not the best friends to each other that we could have been. You know, that we started out much better friends and then something happened and we let each other down. And that's really kind of what happened. And and once we all realized that, we realized that, you know, we we've done some great things together and it was it was really important to acknowledge that to you know, to each other and to ourselves. Now I gotta you ask know, just maturity. You know? I guess, yeah, you do get older and you grow up, and it's weird how we all change. Yeah. We look back and we go, what were we thinking? You know, we, we, we knew each other. We had this huge success. Now, the, you're coming to the vault in yeah. Berlin on March 10th. It's funny because I'm going to a show on March 8th there with uh, Billy Burnett, who's been on my show. He's performing with David, you can second him from the Hooters, uh-huh. and uh, Kenny Harris and the bassist. They all been yeah. on my show. So they're playing. It's like 15 minutes from my house. But now, tell me about it because it's it's a it's a night of storytelling and music. How did you come up with this idea? This actually was it was it was generated. What happened? Joe and I were asked to be on a panel at Stony Brook University, and so the 
a day before or a couple of days before, Joe, Joe called me and said, hey, why don't you bring the guitar to this panel discussion and we'll liven it up, we'll play a couple tunes. I'm like, okay, sure. You know, it sounds great. You know, so I brought my acoustic guitar. You know, we said, we'll just play acoustic because they don't have a PA. We're just going to, I mean, there's a little PA, a speaking PA. It's not like a gig thing. So we got there. We videotaped it, and somebody there said, oh, we'd like to hire you to come to the Bolton Center. So we got another gig out of it. And for that gig, we actually practiced and, and tried to work up some interesting stuff just for that gig. The first time, I mean, what happened for me was that I thought, oh, well, this is a little lame, but, it, you know, it's cool. And then I saw the video of it, and I'm like, oh, no, this is actually pretty good. Hey, you know. So I was I was amenable to, to doing it again. And uh, then we had this offer at the Bolton Center, so we played that. And uh, they sold, you know, they sold enough tickets to make money, and and it was it was fun. So then now we got another gig. So I mean, it's not like we're really trying to get a whole bunch of gigs doing this, but it's fun for me. First of all, in Blue Boys to Cult, I think maybe because I'm playing the drums, it's a little harder. I mean, it's harder to play the drums and sing than to play guitar and sing. And it's also it's easier to present yourself when you're standing than when you're sitting. I mean, you know, I mean, yes, piano players do it all the time, but, you know, um, for me, in Blue Coop, I end up singing one or two songs a night, which is, you know, fine, but I'd really rather be singing, like, half the songs, you know? You know, if you do a 20-song set, I'd like to sing 10. So, because I really like singing. Singing is, is more fun for me than anything else now. That's, that's good. Now, now with your show that's coming up, will you do some of your original music too, or is it just going to be Blue Oyster Cult yes. music? Yes, we're going to do we're going to do mostly Blue Oyster. Play some, you know, uh, we're playing, uh, I think, two or three of uh, songs from Joe's solo record, and we're going to do two or three songs from my solo record. So now you so put. It'll be, you put out a lot of solo albums. How do you constantly come up with material? Uh, actually, just one. Well, no, two. Two solo records. Well, actually, okay, if you count Albert and the Sleigh Riders as a solo record, but it, it, it isn't really. It, it, I, I, that was a record that I started with uh, Snooky Belomo from uh, uh, Tish and Snooky, the Manic Panic Girls. Okay. So Snooky and I had started this Christmas record. And then, then eventually I got like just about everybody I know to contribute. You know, Dennis Dunaway does a song. Joe does a whole bunch of stuff. You know, he sings two songs and he plays bass on a couple and guitar on like three or four. So, and, and I have a whole bunch of other people. That, that, so that's not really a solo record, but it is something that I saw through from you know, from the beginning to the end. So so that so technically you could say I have two solo records, two records I put out this year, you know, that have been created from scratch. Um, so is there any plans to play with... songs, I mean, for me... What's that? No, I was going to say, you cut out for a second. Is, I was going to say, you're playing the solo stuff, you're loving what you're doing. Is there, are you, will you be playing again with Blue Oyster Cold again, or at all, or do you think no, or is that something you might do? I, you know, we, when, when I finished those, those runs, that run of six shows with them, I said, uh, listen, I've had a great time, I'd, I'd love it if you wanted me to do it again, and they said, we, we feel, feel the same. So, we will do something again in the future, God willing. But uh, it, last year I said, well, do you want to do anything this year? Because I need to start planning. And they said, no, we're going to stick with the road guys and we're going to go back to our usual thing. I said, that's fine. You know, so we'll see what happens. You know, uh, I'm not really worried about it. I have so many projects that I'm involved in. I'm, I'm my next 
thing that's going to come out is a, a project called Alan Mark. And it is myself and uh, my friend Mark Barkin, who is a hit songer. He basically, he was writing songs for like pop, pop uh, stars. Like he wrote, uh, he wrote a hit song for Dusty Springfield. I'll try anything. He wrote uh, a hit song. He wrote a couple of hit songs for Leslie Gore. Um, I think it was like Run Bobby Run and That's the Way Boys Are. And, oh, and he also wrote, uh, he wrote three hits for uh, Leslie Gore. Uh, that's not, oh, She's a Fool. She's a Fool is the other one he wrote for her. And then uh, he he wrote for Connie Francis, he wrote for Elvis, he wrote for Man for Man, he had a big hit with Pretty Flamingo. So anyway, I've known him for like 30 years, over 30 years. So he's my good friend, and he got this idea to do a record that pays tribute to law enforcement officers. This is when the Black Lives Matter was in full swing, and it seemed like every week some other, you know, innocent person got shot by the cops. So, uh, so we were feeling like that, you know, there was way too much emphasis put on the bad actors in the law enforcement and not enough on the good, good people. So we wrote a song. Each song is a tribute to a specific officer, almost all of them in New York City. Uh, that that were exemplary, you know, because you know you can like in, in any industry, if you can put down the people that are bad, but it's kind of nice to bring up the people that are good. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, when I started working at the school, and I was assistant principal for six years. I would say to the, the principal, how do you get rid of the bad teachers? He'd say, I don't really know. He says, I don't know. All I know is that I put all of my energy into my good teachers. I give them, I give them money. I give them resources. I give them time. I give them whatever I can. And the bad ones, I don't give anything to. So, uh, so that's kind of where we are coming you know, it's like, let's talk about the good cops because maybe all cops will try and be like them. Right. So anyway, so that's, so the, the record's called Fidelis Ad Mortem, which is the motto of the New York City Police Department. Well, that's and awesome. faithful un, until death. So that's coming out on Thursday. Oh, awesome. Thursday. Well, that's awesome, man. You know what? I want to I thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, I'm a fan of your music. Yeah. My friend Mark Esposito, is, you, you've been his favorite band. I mean, me and him are both 53, and you've been his fan, favorite band yeah. forever. Bloister calls me his favorite Very band. Very cool. And, uh, so, yeah, so now your website is albertbouchard.net. Now, do you tweet or anything? Yes. Do, do you tweet? Uh, no, I am not a tweeter yet, but I do have a blog, which uh, I have one season. It's 20 episodes. Plus twenty promos, so 40, 40 uh, videos, and I'm about to start my next season. That will be uh, the last weekend of, of March. And where can people find that? Uh, if you go, uh, if you go on, um, well, you can search it up. the The name of the blog is Most Cowbell. Okay. Three exclamation points. <laughs> Most cowbell, but but you can also find it on my my video channel, which is the same as my email address, Altbush, A L T B O U C H, okay, and YouTube. If you look up Altbush, YouTube slash Altbush, you'll find all my videos. I have about uh, a lot of them. <laughs> I have well, I have forty forty of the vlog videos that I have about, I have five Luku videos and I have uh, uh, about 15 
uh, Albert Bouchard solo videos. Cool. All right. Well, I'll, 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 more I'm, to come. I'm going to check them out. So, people, please check that out. Also, people, please uh, okay. follow me on Twitter, people. I'm at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 675 episodes on there. You can email me, cooper, wow. at coopertalk.net. And people, don't forget my other website, stopthesalt.com. Remember five years ago when I had that health scare, I had to change my diet, so I wrote a low-sodium cookbook, 120 recipes, no pictures to intimidate you, no long list of ingredients. You can get it at Amazon, but wow. you can get it at stopthesalt.com, people. I make more money, and I'll sign it. So people, please go to albertbussard.net, check out his vlogs, listen to Bloister Cult Music, look into his new album coming out, because it's a great cause, because he's right. Police officers do need, the good ones need to get notarized. They, get, they need to get notoriety. So anyway, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.